solar panels, right? These are brand new. No, no, not really. In 1876, Scientific American was writing about this, this artificial eye that when exposed to light generated a small electrical charge. Uh, a few years after that, a, a now forgotten tinkerer from upstate New York named Charles Fritz installed a selenium solar panel on a building in lower Manhattan. This was in 1884. The Model T had yet to be invented. The, the Wright brothers were still like tinkering around with bicycles in Dayton. How do we get from that to 100% renewable energy? And I would argue it's really not as difficult as we might think. That's Russell Gold. He is senior energy reporter at the Wall Street Journal and is a finalist for the coveted Pulitzer Prize. He is also the author of Superpower, One Man's Quest to Transform American Energy. It's a look into remaking the power grid and how natural forces could power America's future. Russell has a lot to say about our energy future and our past on today's Innovating to a Clean Economy podcast. You're listening to the Innovating to a Clean Economy podcast, a place where we bring industry, students, government, and academia together to drive collaboration for the clean tech economy. This program is brought to you by the UNC Institute for the Environment, and it's hosted by Kirsten Williams. Russell Gold's message has been described as thrilling, provocative, and important. Let's join him live from the 2020 UNC Clean Tech Summit in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Hi, um, thank you very much for uh, inviting me to speak here at the UNC uh, Clean Tech Summit. Chapel Hill is a little bit of a homecoming for me. I, I went to school here. I'm not a Tar Heel, I actually went to Glenwood Elementary about a mile away in fourth grade. <laughs> Um, you know, I, I actually don't really remember much of what I learned in fourth grade a mile away, but I do remember we had this really cool experiment we did about growing mold in a Petri dish. So it's amazing what sticks with you. Another memory, very strong memory I have from that year was um, my, going with my father to a pipe smoking contest in Durham. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with what a pipe smoking contest is or was, I'm not sure if they still exist, the rules are pretty simple. You get to pack your pipe with, a, with tobacco, and I think you get like a certain number of matches. And the, whoever keeps their pipe going longest wins. We did this in an indoor mall, if I remember correctly. This was 40 years ago. But I bring this up because, you know, that's sort of inconceivable that it would happen today, that there'd be a pipe smoking contest in an indoor space. Things change. They can change very quickly. And sometimes we don't notice how quickly things are changing uh, because they're going on all around us. And, and keep that in mind, uh, and I think it's important to kind of keep that in mind at this conference, which is talking about change in the energy sector, and, and also as I'm talking about uh, my most recent book, Superpower. Um, we often don't appreciate how quickly the world is changing. And part of that is because our memories aren't very good. We don't really remember what happened five or 10 years ago. So here's a perfect example. When I lived here from 1980 to 1981, I went to a couple of UNC basketball games. And for years afterwards, I would tell this great story about watching this incredible freshman named Michael Jordan play for the team. And then one year I was telling this to a colleague's husband and he kind of looked at me and he said, what year were you there? And he said, very politely, I think he was actually a North Carolina person, so he was very polite, he informed me that I must have been incorrect because Michael Jordan didn't arrive at UNC until 1981, the fall of 1981, and I'd already left uh, to go back uh, to Philadelphia where I, where I spent the rest of my childhood. So that, that's lesson number two, don't trust your memory. 
Check the facts. So let me start off by telling you a story from my book, a story that I've researched and verified, so I think there are a lot of good facts in here. It's set in 1976, and it involves a recent college graduate named Ted Finch. Probably not all that much different from many students in the room today. Uh, he graduated from college, moved to New York City, wasn't really sure what he wanted to do, knew he wanted to do something in renewable energy. Uh, he had taken a class at the University of Massachusetts with, uh, uh, University of Massachusetts Amherst, with a, a gentleman named William Hieronymus, who was a U.S. Navy captain turned wind zealot. Now, Hieronymus had this plan to build 14,000 offshore wind turbines on floating platforms like the ones used to drill for oil. At the time, it was regarded as absolutely bonkers. Doesn't sound so insane right now. We're sort of building it. I mean, this is sort of the, the plan, you know, one of the plans. So um, things really change, and they change very quickly. For, for a school project, Finch built a 25-foot turbine, uh, connected it to a battery. He had it up and running, uh, and it worked. He used it to fill up the battery. He took it down when he left campus. So he moved to New York City that spring, and he was wandering around downtown, and he loved how the wind came off the harbor and zipped around through the buildings. Um, and he, he had this crazy idea of maybe I'll suspend turbines between the buildings to harvest some of this energy. Um, well, one day he heard about a group of architecture graduate students who were doing an interesting project on the Lower East Side, on East 11th Street. Uh, he, as he told me later, I didn't know what I was gonna do in New York, and it sounded interesting. <laughs> Uh, so, to understand the story, first of all, you need to forget everything you may know about the Lower East Side of New York today. Uh, there were no uh, boutiques and cafes. There were no one-bedroom, one-bathroom apartments selling for $750,000. Uh, the Lower East Side in this block of East 11th Street was known as Stripper's Row because cars went there and were stripped for parts. Uh, one of the architecture students compared the block to Dresden, a uh, German city that was decimated by Allied bombing in World War II. Drugs were readily available for sale, which, come to think of it, probably isn't all that different from what it is today. So families had moved out of tenements in the area uh, because it was getting very expensive, uh, and there were a series of fires. A lot of landlords were actually torching buildings at that point to get insurance. And the, New York had this sweat equity program. If you go in and you fix up one of these tenements, you get to live there. You get to own it. And so this group of uh, graduate students had decided to come together and fix up a tenement, working with some of the residents and, and restore it. And so Ted Finch shows up, wire rim glasses, this big mustache, and says, hey, I'm here to help rehab the place. It sounds like fun. But he didn't really want to rehab. What he wanted to do uh, was put a wind turbine on the roof uh, and generate electricity for, for the tenement. That was his, sort of his idea. And the rest of the group was like, all right, that sounds good. Just go, you know, we're all kind of playing around here. Just go for it. And so he started to do this, and what he wanted to do was connect it to the grid. And this was the Con Ed grid. It was a big grid. This was the original grid when Thomas Edison started uh, building out the grid in lower Manhattan. This is what had evolved uh, into the grid. And he wanted to prove that renewable energy could play a role on the grid. Um, so he called up Con Ed and said, look, we want to connect a turbine to the grid. <laughs> and they sort of laughed at him, and they gave him the runaround. It was dangerous. It was illegal. This one little turbine would destabilize the entire grid and black out in, uh, New York. Um, and then in a Kafka-esque twist, Con Ed said that, look, nobody really knows what kind of paperwork would be required to do this. So if you can't fill out the paperwork, you can't do it. Um, so he gave up. No, just kidding. He, um, he went out and found a, a refurbished Jacobs turbine. Uh, these were turbines that were used all throughout 
uh, the Great Plains in the 1920s and 1930s. He hoisted it up on the roof with a winch. Roof was 60 feet. They built a 37-foot galvanized steel tower and put the wind turbine on top of that. So all together about 100 feet off the ground. And they were getting about an average of 10 mile per hour wind. Not enough, but something. Wired it into an inverter box, uh, which turned the direct current into alternating current. And despite the warnings that Con Ed was gonna lose control of the entire grid, they just hooked it up. And they went downstairs and they watched, maybe the first people ever, they watched the meter roll backwards. Um, and they loved it. They were having a great time. But there was a problem. Not just did the power grid not collapse, Con Ed didn't even notice what was going on. And part of what Ted Finch wanted to do was prove a point that renewable energy could play onto the grid. And if nobody noticed what was going on, what good did it do? So he did what any self-respecting troublemaker would do. He issued a press release. <laughs> the media loved it. Um, New York Daily News showed up. The Times showed up. PBS NewsHour. Con Ed went ballistic. Uh, they brought a, a suit before the Public Utility Commission trying to get them to, to, to stop or at least set rules so that it was so prohibitively expensive. Um, and you know, after a few months later, the Public Utility Commission actually ruled in their favor, said this is legal to do. Uh, Ted Finch had won a very narrow victory uh, involving a vanishingly small wind turbine in a giant pool of power, but he helped establish this really important principle, and that was that renewable energy could be combined with uh, the larger power grid. If people wanted renewables, they could build renewables, add it to the grid, and they would sort of figure out how to make it all work together. Uh, the grip of the all-powerful Con Ed had been loosened. And uh, a few months after that, I think about a year after that, Congress actually passed a bill that cracked open the grid to renewables and sort of established, allowed this to happen. So back in 2016, I talked my way up onto the roof of uh, East 11th Street, uh, walked up the five stories, went and looked for it. The, the wind turbine, unfortunately, is gone. It was taken down in about 1980 because Ted Finch was worried that it was going to collapse and hurt someone on the street if no one was paying attention to it. Um, and and it, was, it was this beautiful day in New York, it, and I looked around, and there were no wind turbines, but I could see about six or seven solar panel installations up on people's roofs. So, um, you know, Ted Finch's turbine was gone, but its children were, were spreading across the Lower East Side. One person had had this idea. He went, he made it a reality. It worked. And in its wake, there were new laws, new opportunities. Um, it had punctured old myths. So the lesson here is that the energy transition really wasn't anything about new technologies. I mean, they literally were using a wind turbine probably from the 1930s to do this. Um, so it's not about using new technologies often, although if someone creates a new battery, creates a, a perovskite solar panel, creates something that will more efficiently remove carbon from the air, you know, that's great, but let's not wait. The energy transition is about building infrastructure, dealing with the intransigent utilities and often obstinate politicians. Uh, build it and watch what happens. That's the lesson that I take from the Ted Finch story. So, you know, 10 or 15 years after Ted Finch put what was, I, I forgot to tell you, it was a two kilowatt turbine on the roof. It was tiny. Um, companies began making 750 kilowatt turbines, 300 times more powerful, and they kept getting bigger. Uh, now we have two megawatt turbines onshore, a thousand times more powerful than what Ted Finch had. Uh, and the newest offshore turbines are approaching, you know, they're bigger than the Statue of Liberty and they're approaching 10 megawatts. That's 5,000 times more powerful than what he was playing with. 
Uh, you know, by the time the 20th century shuffled off into history and the 21st century stumbled out of the gate, renewable technology wasn't really the issue anymore. We have de-risked this technology. Um, we have the technology to generate lots of electricity if we want to. Uh, we've been harvesting wind for a long time. In, in 947 AD, a traveler through what is now eastern Iran recorded simple vertical shaft wind, uh, windmills and talked about how the windmills were being used to raise water and, and, and irrigate gardens. This is not new technology. It's solar, solar panels, right? These are brand new. No, no, not really. In 1876, Scientific American was writing about this, this artificial eye that when exposed to light would blink. Well, all it was was a selenium cell uh, that when exposed to light generated a small electrical charge and they used the charge to, to, to close the eye. Uh, a few years after that, a, a now forgotten tinkerer from upstate New York named Charles Fritz installed a selenium solar panel on a building in lower Manhattan. This was in 1884. The Model T had yet to be invented. The, the Wright brothers were still like tinkering around with bicycles in Dayton. Um, so how did we get from this two kilowatt turbine uh, and a bunch of young men and women, a little bit tipsy, watching their electric meter turn backwards. Uh, how do we get from that to 100% renewable energy? Or something approaching 100% renewable energy? Or, or even 100% low carbon power? And I would argue it's really not as difficult as we might think. Much like Ted Finch, um, you know, who decided just to erect a turbine and see if it collapsed the New York power grid, we need to err on the side of action right now. Um, we must have a bias for building things. Uh, we must stop waiting for someone to come and, and fix the mess we're in because it's very possible that no one will. We are the people who are going to fix this. Um, and we need to get cracking now and, and with, frankly, some urgency if we want to have any chance to maintain our current standard of living uh, and dramatically lower our carbon output, if not begin to reverse it. So I'd like to talk now about a Houston entrepreneur and, and the company named, named Michael Skelly and the company he co-founded, Cleanline uh, Energy Partners, for the rest of my talk. And that's really what my book, Superpower, is about. And uh, I, I should acknowledge not just, there's not just one person, there are two people here in the audience who were very involved in that company. So I'm glad to see you guys come out. Um, the, the story of Cleanline is not well known, but I, would, I think it should be. Because the lessons of Cleanline are what you need to understand renewable energy today and tomorrow. So Michael Skelly wanted to build an extension cord, a really, really long extension cord. One end was gonna be in the Oklahoma panhandle. Uh, the wind rarely stopped blowing. Uh, solar wasn't really bad either. Uh, so it was a really good place to harvest both the wind and the, the sun. Um, but, you know, and it, the problem really was is that there really was no one out there who wanted that electricity. Um, it's a very rural area. You can generate lots of electricity, but what are you gonna do with it? And that's where the extension cord idea came in. You have one end in the Oklahoma panhandle, you pick up all that great um, inexpensive wind and solar, and then you would move it east, across Oklahoma, across um, uh, Arkansas, and then up and over the Mississippi River, and then bring it down back to Earth uh, near Memphis uh, in the TVA grid. And TVA is a really good grid. Once you get in the TVA grid, the idea is you can move it south, move it east in North Carolina, north up into the Baltimore, Philadelphia area. It's going to be 100% privately financed, three or four gigawatts of renewable energy. Piece of cake, right? Um, so the technology is simple. Uh, would have used a state-of-the-art high-voltage direct current transmission. This is pretty much off-the-shelf stuff. 
Uh, and so uh, they started, began to hire uh, workers to fill in all the details. Talk to regulators, talk to landowners, talk to politicians, talk to utilities, and work this out. The first problem they ran into was Harvey uh, Couch, who had been dead for 60 years. Uh, I bet you didn't think this was going to be a zombie story. Um, so Couch had built the electric utility in Arkansas and had made sure that once Arkansas Power and Light had its monopoly franchise, nobody else was going to be able to follow. Um, Skelly wanted to build a power line across Arkansas, but this is what he ran into. To obtain a certificate of public convenience and necessity to be a utility in Arkansas, to, to build uh, assets there, you need to be in the business of owning or operating power equipment. But if you don't own or operate power equipment, you, you, can't, excuse me, you can't build any power equipment unless you're a utility. It was, it was a complete catch-22. Um, and so trying to break into that you know, you, it was sort of impossible. It was designed not to let anyone to come in. Um, so at Harvey Couch's urging, the state had basically dug a moat around the utility and hadn't even bothered to build the drawbridge that was up. There was not even a drawbridge. So turned away by the State Utility Commission, Skelly and Clean Line went to get federal backstop authority uh, and to build this extension cord. And it would take years of fighting and millions of dollars um, to get federal permission to build this. So as a quick aside, when it comes to energy development, a getting a yes or no in a timely matter is crucially important. Maybe come back tomorrow, give us a couple years, that is a kiss of death. So let's take a little tangent here, an important one. Um, the system we have in the United States to regulate power uh, was designed uh, for an electric grid that grew up between World War I and World War II. Uh, the grids were regional, regulations monopolies were, re were regional. No one thought about building a 720-mile extension cord across the United States. Uh, you know, you might as well have said, look, we're going to take a, a conductor and loop it around the moon. How does that sound? I mean, it was that sort of outlandish. So why does this matter? Well, we have, there's a lot to like about the power grid in the United States. We have 99.99% uh, reliability. It delivers power when we want it. Uh, you know, if it's, not, if it's not broke, why fix it? And so here's my answer to that. The current system is inflexible and it's not going to accommodate what's coming. And that's the future of energy. Uh, and that's why the current regulatory system needs an upgrade. There was a time when wind energy was unpredictable, it was expensive, the turbines were prone to break down, you know, solar maybe was good for heating water. That's all changed. Uh, talk to your local grid operator. The Texas grid operator once worried that if they got 15 gigawatts of wind and solar, there'd be major failures. They're north of 22 gigawatts right now and adding quickly. Uh, prices continued to be low, no blackouts. Ten years ago, the average cost of generating a megawatt hour of electricity from natural gas was about $80. Wind was a little higher, $87. Solar was $159. Now, the latest numbers, natural gas has gone down to $56. Wind is $41. Solar is $37. We've had a complete switch. These are unsubsidized numbers. That's not including the tax credit. Uh, what Skelly and Cleanline were offering was to sell power for $18.50 a megawatt hour, so substantially even lower than that. Renewable energy, if you get one thing from this talk, it's that renewable energy is now the cheapest megawatt out there. Uh, and the United States has a huge potential amount of renewable energy to tap. Lots of wind in the middle of the country, lots of solar in the southeast and the southwest. Renewables are continuing to get less expensive. Uh, coal can't compete at these prices. Nuclear cannot. Just straight 
head-to-head -head generation. Nuclear is having trouble competing at these prices. Natural gas is going to start having more and more problems competing at these prices. The future appears to belong to renewables. The question is, how long do you want to hold on to a coal plant that's at above market prices, and why do you need the coal plant? So the old model that we built between the wars of this regional grid, powered by mostly in-state power plants, you know, now we have the potential to, to think about a new way, uh, to think about a renewable resources that are coming from other places, that are coming from where there's lots of good wind, where there's lots of good solar, where there's lots of land, and bringing the power to where uh, it needs to be. Um, so in the past decade, when we've seen renewable energy get much less expensive and much more robust, we've seen exactly zero new transmission uh, built to connect regions of this country, to move power from the Great Plains to the east or to the west. Um, our grids are aging, they're congested, and we are doing nothing to build a national grid. Uh, nothing to tap the enormous zero carbon potential resource uh, in the middle of the country. So I would argue that we need to stitch together, and what the book is about is, is sort of the clean lines idea, um, to start building together a new grid of HVDC lines. Um, is it feasible? Uh, well, let's take a quick look at it. Uh, the folks at the federal government's energy research laboratory outside of Denver have run some very sophisticated simulations of this. Getting to 30% renewables was doable, wouldn't raise power prices, wouldn't destabilize the grid. Uh, but the biggest carbon reduction and lowest generating, but excuse me, to get the biggest carbon reduction and the lowest generating costs, they concluded that the U.S. needed to build this new overlay of, of, of transmission lines, high voltage transmission lines, to move power around more efficiently. Um, in fact, you could go a lot higher than the 30%. You could get up to 80% without raising prices. So, and that would generate, and needless to say, a huge reduction in carbon emissions. Uh, so why haven't you heard about this work? Well, it's part of something called the SEAM study, and the federal government hasn't released it yet, even though most of it was completed by 2012. They're still studying it. Maybe they'll release it sometime soon. I would argue that we need an interstate system for electrons. Think about the benefits of the United States interstate road system. You know, you can get on I-40 here, you can go to California or to Wilmington without hitting a light. Uh, you can switch over, uh, get on I-85, go down to Atlanta, go north. Uh, think about the economic development of this country that was generated from these interstate, uh, in building this interstate highway system. So why not build that for electricity? Why not build something that works like that? And by the way, there's lots of potentially interesting cyber, um, uh, cyber security benefits to having a big HVDC system, which we can get into uh, after the talk. Um, so Michael Skelly and CleanLine wanted to make this into a rea reality, but he ran into a bunch of regulatory uh, buzzsaws. And one of the biggest problems that CleanLine had was that it was hard to convince the people of Arkansas to accept the, what they saw as the sacrifice for the greater good of less carbon and less expensive power. And that sacrifice was building a transmission line through the, through the state. As a country, we're not good at sacrificing for the greater good right now. We're simply too divided. Um, and so, you know, this is sort of the problem that CleanLine faced. But what if you didn't need to build a big 
200, 250 foot wide right of way straight through the forest of Arkansas? What if instead of 200 foot tall towers, we could just bury them underground? Um, the right of way would shrink to 10 or 20 feet, uh, very little to see, viewshed issues would disappear. Increasingly, this is becoming possible. Uh, we're seeing one project right now in Iowa and Illinois that's trying to do this along the Canadian Pacific Railroad line. Uh, and I would leave you with this, that pay attention to companies like ABB and Siemens that are uh, selling the, that, that are big in the HVDC technology because they are coming out with incredibly competitive prices to bury these lines instead of putting them above. So now let me quickly quote a woman named Karen Newman. Uh, she was an, a huge critic of overhead power lines. She hates them, hated Skelly, hated clean line. And she said not long ago, uh, why do landowners oppose new electric transmission? This was on her blog. Because it's usually an intrusion onto their homes and businesses and sense of place. It requires them to make a huge sacrifice so that others may receive a benefit. Sometimes it's even so that others may profit at the expense of landowner sacrifice. Well, what did she think about the concept of the buried line? At last, she said. She loved it. So one of the most untiring critics of these big power lines was like, she's fine with it as long as we bury them. So do we have corridors to bury these lines? Sure. We have railroads. We have interstates. Um, and, and guess what? Those interstates and those railroads go from populated areas to populated areas, the exact place you would need to move the power. Uh, so I would, you know, what, what I hope I'm presenting is, is sort of a compelling vision of the future that's entirely within our grasp. Uh, what do utilities get out of it? They would be able to rate base a new underground transmission system over the next couple of decades. They would be able to rate base the cost of removing above uh, ground lines, lots of jobs created. What do rate payers get? Uh, well, they would take down some of the big wires. They would access lots of low cost electricity. Um, oh yeah, and we get to slash our carbon footprint. If we do this right, uh, integrating low cost renewable power might even be able to offset the cost of building the new grid. So, uh, but, you know, we don't necessarily need to hand this over to utilities. There's a tsunami of investment money out there that wants to get into sustainable infrastructure and would be more than happy to finance some of these projects. We have the technology. So I would argue that this is an idea whose time has come. And a lot of the different projects and ideas that the various breakout sessions are talking about, wind, solar, batteries, all of those are enabled uh, and elevated microgrids by building a new transmission grid in the United States. You would be able to move power more efficiently. Um, you could have battery storage. It just, everything I've seen indicates to me that it just makes tons of sense. We have the technology. We have people ready to invest. Uh, we can bury the lines to resolve community opposition. The power's inexpensive and getting more inexpensive to generate, and it's cleaner. So why did we create an electric monopoly in the first place that's, that's causing so many problems and sort of standing in the way of some of this, this vision? Um, only a few years after New Yorkers marveled at Thomas Edison's new lights, they began to grouse about the profusion of poles and overhead wires that were carrying that electricity. Um, in 1889, a New York mayor uh, named Hugh Grant uh, urged companies to remove their wires from the rooftops and put them in underground conduits, which were called subways at the time. Uh, and when the companies didn't act quickly enough, he actually armed a crew of, of city employees with axes and sent them out to chop down poles. Um, <laughs> It, crowds cheered on Broadway as the polls <laughs> fell. Wires are a natural monopoly. We should have one set of wires. That's why we built, a, uh, that's why we built these monopolies. But 
uh, you know, we don't want a lot of competing wires. That doesn't make sense. Uh, but the nature of the grid is changing. And we're going to have more microgrids that need to be connected to the broader grid. There's going to be a growing need to move bulk power around the country to take advantage of the inexpensive wind and the inexpensive solar. We've solved how to move coal and gas around. We have railroads for coal, we've got pipelines for gas, but we need to now build a new infrastructure to move around electrons uh, from region to region, like from the Oklahoma panhandle. There is time for all of us to, to adopt a, a play it safe approach. Um, excuse me, there is a time for all of us to adopt a, pl a play it safe approach. This is not that time. Now is the time to build. We need a bias to build. We need to embrace the future. The technology is ready, the opportunities are enormous, the benefits are also enormous. Thank you for listening. I hope if you have a chance, buy the book, hear some more of these stories, uh, but more importantly, go out and build the future and uh, watch out for the zombies. Thank you very much. That was Russell Gold live at the 2020 UNC Clean Tech Summit in Chapel Hill. This program is brought to you by the UNC Institute for the Environment. We would like to give a special thanks to the following companies for making this podcast possible and for their commitment to clean tech innovation. Strata Solar, Duke Energy, Bank of America, Pace Business Partners, Birdseye Renewable Energy, and Southern Company. I'd love for you to join me again. So please take a moment to like and subscribe to this podcast. I'm Kirsten Williams from the Clean Tech and Innovation Program at the Institute for the Environment at UNC Chapel Hill. Thanks for listening.